This episode of Money Reimagined is sponsored by PayPal. You're listening to Coindesk's Money Reimagined with Michael Casey and Sheila Warren. I've seen a lot of panels that get called demystifying crypto, but we're going to, this is it. This is the one we literally are going to demystify it, right? Because it's it's still a mystery to a lot of people for some strange reason, but this is it. The total and utter complete demystification of crypto. I got an incredible panel, actually, guys. This is, you wanted to call on some experts, some rock stars in this space. These would be the gentlemen that you'd want. We're represented by Fidelity, by Van Eck, by Bitwise, all of whom have really been so much more driving into this space than, than, it, than anyone else really in, in this industry. So it's going, to be, it's going to be a good ride, I think. Maybe a bit of a show of hands because if we're demystifying, we, you know, show of hands, who knows what HODL represents? Okay, about half. This is, we've got one down there already. So that's, that's, pretty, that's pretty good, about half. But Jan, why don't you just do the honors and explain the HODL story so at least, you know, it's got some reference. Well, I mean, there's a lot of uh, communication in the Twitter and the crypto community on Twitter and Signal and Telegraph and other kind of alternative social media. Um, HODL stands for hang on for dear life, which means, you know, be a longtime investor um, and a holder of Bitcoin. My favorite phrase is uh, FUD, fear, uncertainty and doubt, which represents all the misinformation. But since we're demystifying, we don't need, we can forget what this FUD is, stands no FUD. for. This is a FUD free zone. <laughs> exactly. All right? However, <laughs> um, we are going to start talking about Washington, where there, where there has been some FUD. Look, the thing that is, it, we'll just get the elephant out of, in the room out of the way first. Uh, and that is, you know, the when are we going to get a spot Bitcoin ETF, right? Because it's all dependent on the say-so of, of a certain regulator. And we've been down this road for quite a long time now. But a number of institutions, BlackRock over there, Banek, others are all in this space. Fidelity, all of you are, are playing in this space. I want to know when you think it's going to happen. Why don't we start with you, Jan, as well? Like, when is Gary I mean, going to give us the okay? My dad used to say, you know, pay attention to what people say because often they do what they actually say. And it seems like the chairman of the SEC has no interest in approving a spot Bitcoin ETF. It may go to political levels higher than that, but I'll stick with that. So unless you have a change in in uh, parties in power, I just I, I don't see it happening. I'm I'm a little polluted by my law school uh, background, which always says that, yeah, the law is one thing, but look at the power structure and lawyers can always come up with different excuses for different things. So I'm sorry to be the, the negative outlier on this panel, maybe, but that's kind of my you want to put a date uh, on it? Review. Uh, yeah, whenever uh, the, blue, the next the, a Republican president gets elected. Okay. So possibly a long time, possibly not. Possibly a very long time. Who knows? Time. Uh, Matt, though, you, you're a little bit more optimistic, I think. Yeah, I'll take the under on that bet, Jan. Uh, another way of viewing this SEC commission under this chairman is it's the first commission that approved a ETF with the word crypto in its name. It's actually a bitwise ETF. Uh, it's the first commission that approved a 40-act Bitcoin futures fund, the first commission that approved a 33-act Bitcoin fund, first commission that looks likely to approve Ethereum futures funds, approved a 2x levered Bitcoin futures fund. Compared to all the other commissions <laughs> that came before us since the Winklevoss filed for the first Bitcoin ETF uh, in the 1930s or whatever, this commission has made a lot more progress. And I think they're sort of boxed into a corner where I think there's a, a reasonable probability that we'll get a spot Bitcoin ETF. I'm not certain, but I think there's a, a good probability. And I think they've actually done more on ETFs 
even though I don't think they're favorable to crypto, they've done more on ETFs than any other commission before them, and they probably don't get enough credit for that. They, they certainly not in the crypto industry. That that is a, a rare perspective, actually. So you know, clearly has not received enough subpoenas. <laughs> <laughs> no comment. When he does, we'll see see if he changes his tune. But Jason, like um, you know, Fidelity, obviously very interested in all of this. How important is it, right? I mean, is it getting this particular approval? I mean, there's just been so much attention on it, and clearly. It, it would be a product that a lot of the people at this conference would now be able to offer to their clients who would prefer that means of gaining exposure to Bitcoin or, or whatever other uh, crypto ETFs come after it. But like, how important is it for the adoption of, of the technology and, and investing in it? Uh, Michael, I think it's important, but I think in the interim period, people are finding ways to get exposure to the assets. And from a Fidelity perspective, for a long time, we've been looking at this asset, listening to our customers, I think this asset, particularly Bitcoin, but we're looking beyond that. And what we have found is you really need to do a lot of education. So as quick as an ETF happens or doesn't happen, what's most important right now is that you're engaging with people and helping them understand the ecosystem, the user experience, and whether or not this is an appropriate asset for them to invest in. But I, I do think the structure of the product is appealing because it will give people the opportunity to get the exposure in a format that they're familiar with. Yeah, I, I would just add, I think, it's, I think it's a game changer for a number of reasons. I think it's been like our white whale and we have to slay it before we can move on. I also think about the gold ETF uh, in 2003, which really transformed gold from an asset that wasn't part of the mainstream into an asset that is part of the mainstream. And I think there's no real reason to believe crypto won't do that. I think the, the other ways that you get access to it are just helping people who want to get in front of that train, uh, just like the, the gold funds that existed prior to gold ETFs. Uh, Jan's firm ran probably the best one, was a way for people to get ahead of the mainstream adoption of that asset class as well. Yeah, no, yeah, and you've got a view on, on how to view Bitcoin through the kind of lens of gold, right? I mean, you do think that that's where it conceptually goes. Yeah, I mean, I'd like to speak to the crypto skeptics in the crowd. And, you know, for them, we've are there, are there many out there, crypto skeptics? Yay. There's one. All right. I'll speak to you. You're welcome here. You are welcome. <laughs> I think there have been a lot of macro speakers at this conference who have talked about the big budget deficits. And, you know, for some people here, gold is an alternative. And I think Bitcoin is an alternative, too. And I think what's interesting to me about BlackRock is not to speak for them, but in their macro strategies, they do allocate to Bitcoin. They just look at it as another tactical trade. Not when the Fed is tightening, is that the best trade? But maybe now that they're almost done with that process. So, you know, it's just a, a normal, I think, investment without getting too hung up on the technology and anything else. You can participate, as Matt said, you can buy a Bitcoin futures um, ETF today. You can get it directly through Fidelity. It's, it's accessible. And I think it's normal, you know, for some investors to participate. But custody still is a barrier, right? I mean, and that's presumably why they, there's so much focus on the ETF because nobody wants to, it seems like a lot of people still do not want to self-custody. What's Fidelity's take on? I mean, you have your, your own custodial service and you've just launched some, maybe yes. give some details about that. So we, we do offer custodial services on Bitcoin and Ethereum. Uh, the Fidelity Digital Assets team uh, came forward in 2018 to make that available to institutions. Over time, we have expanded that to retail investors through the Fidelity Crypto product. And just recently, we made it available to wealth advisors through Wealthscape, which is Fidelity's institutional platform. So when we think about what people need, 
Custody is a risk. And by providing solution that is both secure and institutional grade and gone through appropriate controls and testing, we feel like we've been able to help address what is one of the major obstacles for people to come into the space by offering the custody product. But I also want to just touch on, again, it's beyond that too. It's user experience and education that will help bring people in. And I'm just thankful that we have uh, an allocation of resources. We're going out and actively doing that just to help break down what are those perceived barriers. Um, maybe just a little bit of background on Fidelity's journey here, because I mean, you really were amongst traditional finance uh, companies so much earlier than anyone else, I think. And and um, t- tell a little bit about that journey, where, where it began, and and why so early on there was so much focus on trying to understand and and develop education around this. Sure. So Fidelity's journey into Bitcoin and crypto started back in 2014, and people were looking at this technology and this asset and questioning, well, what is it really? And we were given a mandate uh, from our CEO, Abby Johnson, to go out and explore. So the organization that I'm part of is called Fidelity Center for Applied Technology, or internally referred to as FCAT. And within FCAT, we decided that the first thing we should do is understand the technology. So we began doing some proprietary mining. Understand how does the algorithm work? What does it mean to participate in this network? What's it like to take possession of an asset? What can you do with it? And in part, because we we saw that it was an interesting non-correlated or less correlated asset We also were looking at the blockchain technology and questioning what else could we do. And because we're a private company, we have a long history of looking forward. And in FCAT, our our mission is to look 5, 10, 20 years and beyond into the future from a socioeconomic perspective. We try to anticipate what might come from this. So through that learning and through those experiences, we realized that people would have challenges with understanding the assets. We went into a lot of education. Then we realized that custody was going to be um, a key capability to bring forward. And that's what led to the birth of the digital assets custody business. And from there, we've expanded. You have the opportunity to participate in a digital asset account. If a 401k sponsor chooses to make that available to their participants, they have an opportunity to allocate there that's serviced and custodied by Fidelity Digital Assets. We've also had um, just tremendous amount of engagement on the research and development side. So I have one of the coolest jobs at Fidelity because I run a global organization that is researching blockchain crypto around the world. And we think about some of the regulatory constraints here. We're trying to keep our heads up and look at what's happening around the world. And frankly, there are a lot of places that are moving at different speeds as a result. But because we are private, because we're global and we're long-term focused, we were given the freedom to go off and explore. And it's led to a very uh, unique set of capabilities. We kind of talked that we weren't going to be talking about the things that we're selling. I and mean, I think Fidelity just made a sales pitch, but it was, it was impressive nonetheless. And, and but having done that, maybe for the purposes of equity. Maybe a little bit about Van X journey. Sure. Um, well, we, we sort of turned the tide in 2017 when uh, Van Eck happened to start the first gold fund, mutual fund in the industry in 1968, and just uh, worried about whether Bitcoin would disrupt gold. So we decided that it might be a complement to gold um, in 2017. So that's when we started filing. We were the first ETF, uh, established ETF firm to file for Bitcoin and Ethereum and a lot of these different funds that are coming to market, which is great. But it hasn't been first to file all the time in crypto land. But you know, let me be a little bit passionate because you know uh, we were talking a little bit before about this. If we're demystifying, staying away from Ethereum and all these kind of things. You know, I went on vacation this summer to Europe, and Amex took three percent from the merchants, and then the spread on my Turkish lira transactions, because Turkey's not part of the EU, was like eight over eight percent, right? And whether you can see cost savings in our relatively highly efficient financial markets, that's a little bit hard for me to explain to you. But as a customer, I can say that's ridiculous. And so when I see Visa partnering with Solana, 
and cutting out one of the people who are biting at that 3% apple, I'm, I'm excited. You know, I think we see a lot of things in financial services that our shareholders are paying costs for embedded monopolies. I, don't, I can go into it, but we want to get rid of that kind of stuff. We're more in a shareware environment where lower costs are better for everyone. And you know, talking about internationally, Brazil's central bank mandate is I want to tokenize everything. I want to digitize everything because I want to bring costs down for our consumers. And they built a bank payment network called the PIX Payment Network, where it's free from people to use cell phones, text messages, or whatever to transfer money from one normal bank account to another. So it doesn't just have to be using crypto technology. It's this whole digitization trend of making things better for consumers. So that's what excites me about sort of the blockchain. It's a tool to get around yeah, I mean, these established duopolies, monopolies. Yeah, and I think we've got some. We're going to go move into I think some of these sort of more interesting new applications that are that are emerging. I think to get to explore all of those efficiencies that and, and opportunities that come out of it. But but also just just to round this out, Bitwise's journey and you know. Sure. Uh, first, I would note something that may not be obvious, but speaks a lot to where we are in the evolution of crypto, which is these were the first two mainstream financial firms to enter into crypto. And the thing that they share, which people didn't maybe comment on the time, is they're both privately owned entities. So they had the freedom to do it. The fact that today it's not just these guys, but BlackRock and Franklin and every other major publicly owned company, as well as Visa and PayPal, et cetera, speaks to how much progress we've made even in the last five years. Because Fidelity was extraordinarily early and Vanek was extremely early, but now everyone has come on board. And I, I think people assume there's a continuum, but there's actually a step function from you guys to where we are today, which is really significant. Bitwise, so we can move on, is a specialist crypto asset manager. We've been in the market for six years. So we came to this market, de novo. We're the largest crypto index fund manager in America and indeed the world. Uh, and we're unique that we serve financial advisors. So we serve a couple thousand financial advisors. We think much of crypto has been built on retail, self-directed individuals, and some on institutional, but the next major adopters are actually financial advisors. And so those are the, the thousands of people we serve today, and hopefully the, the tens and twenties of thousands of people will serve in the future. Great. Okay. Let's, um, let's just change tack a little bit here. You know, I think like if we're just thinking about prices, clearly, you know, this isn't, we're in the trough. It's, it's not been a great couple of years for crypto. Prices have been pretty stagnant and we've come off from some, some big highs, but there's actually, you know, as there always seems to be in these moments, you know, the, the biddle moment, which is the play on build, the biddle periods happen during these, these quiet lulls. And, and, and the, the buzz of the moment seems to be a revival of something that we were talking about a few years ago, but it now seems to maybe have some real legs behind it because of the, precisely, I think, because of the institutional interest in this. And that's um, real world assets, this tokenization concept. And I think maybe we could just break that down because I think to me, it feels like one of those topics that's a that's accessible to advisors and others, because you can just start talking about what you could do with assets that they're already familiar with. You don't have to get your head around what is Bitcoin and what is Ethereum or is Ether, but rather, okay, I got a house. What could I do with that? And maybe, maybe Jason, because I know you and I were chatting about this, like, what do you see the, the opportunities and the potential for tokenization? I think tokenization is a really interesting attribute of blockchain, because what you're really talking about is the way to represent an ownership record. And when we think about how things are done today. There's lots of archaic systems and lots of intermediaries that come in and can delay the processing. And I think it's really important just to make a distinguishment for a moment between what is a native digital asset that only exists on a blockchain versus creating a digital twin or tokenizing a real world asset. And 
When we think about the tokenization of real-world asset, we've seen real estate activities, we've seen commodities that people are tokenizing. But the point of tokenizing for some is to try and make the asset more accessible. And we see a lot of commentary on fractionalization or improving liquidity, improving transparency. But when it comes down to it, you need to make sure that you still are honoring the property rights and that those property rights can be represented. And one of the very interesting things personally to me is that you may be able to actually embed compliance into the token itself. So you can program these assets in a way that you have greater operational efficiency in supporting them. Yeah. Thoughts? Uh, can, I, can I fight with your question? So you said the last couple of years have been tough, but since 2017, when we started getting involved, Bitcoin was at $3,000 a coin. So I think this is a misperception in, in, the, in the world where there was a lot of breakage. A lot of people came in at the wrong time and have lost money, but there are a lot of very happy crypto people. And when crypto people hang out, they basically ask themselves, when did you get involved? Because that basically tells them how, how much walkaway <laughs> money they have, right? If they say 2011, you're like, oh my God, right? I mean, there's been $700 billion or whatever it is of wealth created. Anyway, bringing it to this context, there are prospects and clients who have a lot of crypto wealth and they're happy, is my point. There are a lot of upset investors, I get it. And we try to do our best with education. And the question is, how are you going to reach those crypto native clients? And I think it's, it's yes, it's through products that are wrapped in ETFs and things like that. But I think there is also uh, you know, getting to where they custody their assets with an established custodian and having the software tools to look into those assets so you as an advisor know how much wealth they have. And those tools are coming. And so it's not getting them to get away from their own wallets because they're going to keep them. They've worked very well, especially after FTX. People want to self-custody to a certain extent. The SEC is attacking Coinbase and the other custodians. But get the information flow, get the software tools, make sure your vendors are able to see what the younger generation owns because you might be surprised. And so I think that's kind of the to-do and that's the business opportunity for RIAs. And I know you work with a lot of RIAs too. Yeah, it's, it's huge. I was just to say, I mean, in some respects, that is what a blockchain revolution is. It is an information revolution. It's about bringing all this data on chain and, 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 and being able to have this, this record of integrity that goes all the way back. And I know you've thought a lot about the various things and the various tools that could be built on all of that, Matt. Yeah, I'm really excited about the tools. I'd add to your, your performance points, the best performing asset class in the world this year. Uh, Bitcoin's up 50 plus percent. Crypto stocks are up on average 100 plus percent. This year feels a lot like 2019, which also felt terrible, which felt a lot like 2015, which also felt terrible. The world ends in crypto every four years like clockwork, and uh, we're just rebuilding. Introducing PayUSD, PayPal's U.S. dollar equivalent stablecoin. Designed for digital payments and Web3 transactions, PayUSD is the only stablecoin supported by PayPal. Built on Ethereum, it's compatible with the most widely used wallets, exchanges, and dApps, and fully backed by U.S. dollar deposits and cash equivalents. Eligible U.S. PayPal customers who purchase PayPal USD are able to transfer PayPal USD between PayPal and compatible external wallets, send PayPal USD to friends in the U.S. on PayPal or Venmo without fees, shop with PayPal USD on millions of sites, wallets, and dApps, convert any of PayPal's supported cryptocurrencies to and from PayPal USD. Whether you are a crypto expert or a newcomer to the world of digital currencies, PayPal provides a secure and convenient platform for your crypto transactions. Start exploring now at paypal.com PYUSD. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited about everything that can be built. I like to think about sort of proven 
things the technology can do and then the barriers to scaling into tokenization. So we've proven through DeFi that you can run trading platforms that as are efficient as efficient or actually much more efficient than the largest centralized trading platforms in the world. We've proven through DeFi that we can process instantaneous loans on margin. We've proven that we can have $100 billion of stablecoin volume and have that money move around the world instantaneously. And then the question is, when, what does it take to get to real world assets? You and I were talking about this. I think there are two things, one of which we solved, or at least are on the path to solving. The first was scalability. Until two years ago, I think blockchains weren't built for the real world. They could only handle a handful of transactions. I think layer twos have gone a long way to solving that problem. And then the second is regulatory breakthroughs. But that to me is just a matter of time. Once you have the proof of concept, that this technology works, which you can see when you have Uniswap, which has zero employees, zero offices, no CEO, doing more trading volume than Coinbase, which is an incredible company. Once you see that that proof point happens, you just have to think, what are the necessary conditions for this to scale? And I think it was throughput, which we're solving or is solved and regulation, which we'll get to somewhere around the world, will demonstrate that it works and then will be adopted globally. I think it's just a matter of time. But I think you still face, right? People think, okay, wh what is the payoff here? What am I getting out of it? Why is this such an exciting thing? Like, what is the value of tokenizing an asset? Because, right? I mean, among other reasons, existing finance is terrible. I mean, it's so slow. Uh, stocks are settling in a day, maybe two days, three days. Financial transactions take five days to settle. I can get an elephant delivered to my house in an hour from Amazon. But if I want to send a wire on a Friday, I'd be better off jumping on a plane with a suitcase full of cash. It's absurd. So it solves that. I think the financial transaction tax is calculated something in the trillions of dollars, and that can be literally decimated. So we could remove 90% of that and return that to real people. The financial industry is too big. It's the only industry that hasn't been disrupted in a fundamental way by the internet. JP Morgan was founded in the 1700s. What other industry has a company that's the largest player that was founded 300 years ago? It doesn't exist, and, and I, I suspect it'll change. Michael, if I can just jump in on that for a minute, I think it's very interesting and appropriate. 15 years ago this week, Lehman Brothers went bankrupt. And Bitcoin and blockchain came into the lexicon as a response to that global financial crisis. And at the time, I was running an operation dealing with collateral management, different things, and just trying to get access to data that people agreed on. Tremendous amount of reconciliation. Here you have a shared source of truth. When you talk about DeFi, you see that you can automate collateral margin calls. You can automate settlement. It's done within seconds. It's cryptographically verifiable. You don't have to worry about whether or not it's been double spent. And I think a lot about transactions that are related to securities lending. And perhaps they are failing because the security is out on loan or it's been rehypothecated a number of times. You can't do that with a tokenized asset. So I, I think you have a higher degree of verifiability. And certainly the transparency is there. But you, you touched on layer twos which I think is fantastic because as we think about minimizing the variability around the transaction cost to settle on a blockchain, then we start getting into higher scalability, people being more willing to participate because they can actually indicate what is their profit and loss going to be based on knowing that it's going to be something uh, less than it might be if it were in the main chain. Since we're demystifying, why don't we just quickly give a definition of layer one versus layer two? Can, who wants to take that? Sure, I can take it quickly because I dropped it. A layer one is sort of the foundational layer. And what I talk to people about uh, for an analogy is think about railroad tracks. Tracks are consistent. You can put any type of car on top of that railroad track and it'll be able to be pushed somewhere around the country. Layer two is when you take an ad uh, built on top of that first primary layer, which is a settlement layer. So it could be a decentralized application. It could be roll-ups like Matt was talking about. But you sort of think about it as... 
you cannot have the layer two without the layer one. And the layer one is where the final settlement happens. Yeah. So it's yeah, bringing all this efficiency and solving you know, the gas fees, the higher prices, all of the stuff that's been you know, a, a bit of a, a drag on, on Ethereum and others as well. Okay, so yeah, I mean, one of the things that I think is is also important here is this kind of macro context. You know, we talked a little bit earlier on, Jan, about you know, there's an interest rate environment, rates have been going up. There's there's a there's a geopolitical context here with you know uh, Russia and China literally being booted out of the SWIFT network. And so, you know, how does this all play into these these opportunities this technology brings? I mean, what what the blockchain does, it's it doesn't. There's there's no way of controlling it, right? Which scares regulators. But that is the only kind of system that can compete with existing oligopolies or monopolies and credit cards and other parts of the financial ecosystem. So that's uh, that that's that's kind of it in a nutshell. I do think payments are very exciting. When you think about, I mean, hopefully we'll get to one day where I always put myself in your shoes. Like, why do I care? And I think um, as, a, as a mutual fund and ETF sponsor, there are ways, okay, to shave basis points off of fund fees by getting rid of the QCIP monopoly, by getting rid of you know, some of the inefficiencies in the settlement system or for SEC lending or whatever it is, because a lot of our funds do securities lending. It may not be glamorous, but hopefully one day we'll be at a conference and it'll be like, well, you know, Fidelity, why aren't you using DeFi? Why, why aren't you using these de- decentralized exchanges for your foreign exchange transactions if you can save me two basis points on your international funds, right? That it's the cost savings of technology ultimately. So that's what, you know, I know there's lots of different ways to get there, but that's kind of what I kind of look at is the bottom line. How can we deliver cheaper solutions using the blockchain. And, and can we get there by just like this piecemeal approach or is it going to take a huge player like Fidelity or a BlackRock or maybe it's this, you know, Swift working with Chainlink now on, on you know, proving these interoperable tokenization. Uh, you know, my, my, my answer to that is we don't know yet. Um, I, I draw the analogy to another database revolution. Databases used to be inflexible. And then there's something called the relational database, which came around 50 years ago. But that didn't become an investable trend, right, in and of itself. So there's two ways this can go. It could be kind of crypto companies that adopt the blockchain faster and provide use cases like a Uniswap or others. Or it could be the visas of the world that just take this technology, say it's great, or the fidelities. We've got the scale. We can save money for our clients. And, and you won't know that crypto is being used. You won't know the blockchain is being used. And both of those are, are great. As long as we get to the end goal of reducing costs, it has investment implications for Uniswap or other tokens. But you know, active investment managers, I think, can can dance around that. Matt, what do you see as being the big, not so much the killer app, but the sort of the the tipping point moment? I think it's it's never a moment. Maybe it looks like a moment in retrospect, but it's never it's never a moment. I think we're going through that mainstream transition, which is what you're talking about. And there are more stars that you can point to indicating that we're there than people acknowledge. You have Larry Fink, who called Bitcoin an index of money laundering in 2017 and, and then called it uh, able to transcend all currencies and revolutionize finance a few weeks ago. That's a pretty big swap. You have the world's largest asset manager allocating to crypto. You just had PayPal call stablecoins the future of payments. They have a whole page that says stablecoins for payments. They launched their own stablecoin into a very rough regulatory environment. You have Visa building on the settlement network. You have Nike that did $200 million in NFT revenue last year. They're just 
all of these large companies moving into this space at an increasing cadence, you have a Bitcoin ETF, which Jan thinks is coming in a few years and I think is coming in a handful of months, but is certainly coming. I think we're moving into that mainstream era. I think it'll happen in a major way in the next three years. And everyone will be using blockchain applications without knowing it. And that's, and that's kind of what I was saying, the other scenario, right? You're talking about basically Fortune 500 companies adopting the blockchain technology, delivering it to their tens of millions of customers. And we may not be able to benefit from it as token investors, right? Is that fair? I think that's kind of fair. Although PayPal's uh, stablecoin is built on Ethereum, Nike's NFTs are issued on the Ethereum blockchain. So I think you can participate indirectly. But if you wanted a holistic portfolio, you would buy crypto assets, you would buy crypto equities, you would buy mainstream companies that get it. And if you wanted to be aggressive, you would short mainstream companies that don't get it. And I think that would that would give you the coverage you're looking at. Can I push for maybe a consensus here? Because I think everyone wants actionable investment ideas. Um, and one of the conversations we've had is be bearish the banks, right? Because the banks are sitting ducks in the United States for the technology disruption and the Regulators are saying you can't touch it. I don't know. I don't, so I don't if, know you, if you, you can't stomach you holding Bitcoin, you should at least short banks. I I think they're. I don't know. That's what I'm asking yeah. for. That, that would be my belief. I would be concerned. I think when you look at technologies, you have to look at the winners and the losers. And I I would love your perspective on this as well. I'm not going to comment on that. We have great <laughs> relationships with our custodian Ooh. banks. What I will say though is this: I think many of the banks are already exploring blockchain technology but not public blockchain. There's a lot of exploration of permission, private networks. They're working to take out some of their costs. Some of them are working to support assets that may move on a public chain as well. So I think it's important to understand there's a debate that's been around forever. It's public or it's permission. And oftentimes you see these very tight camps. It's one or the other. I think the banks are trying to explore how to play both sides. I think many people see value in both sides, but let me just be a little bit more nuanced. Sorry, Michael. But just, I think U.S. banks are more hamstrung by regulators because they're very hostile to crypto right now than banks overseas. So there's a lot of crypto. Basically, the rest of the world has enacted crypto regulation in one extent or another from Hong Kong to Brazil to Europe. It'll all go into effect in the next six months or so. And I think they're working with their banks to try to, to do what you were talking about, which is facilitate the use of this technology enthusiastically because it's better for customers. You're right. So we look across Europe, you see the markets and crypto assets legislation, you see the DLT sandbox, and they're literally selling transactions against stable coins, but they're limited value. So just put in, in, in context, the banks can support only X number of stable coins. It's capped. It's relatively small. I, I can't recall offhand, but I, I think it is definitely a different environment overseas. I mean, it, it's an interesting moment in some respects that this technology that, that could upend, I don't know, 500 years of the way finance has been handled, the, you know, the, the most, possibly the most disruptive idea ever. Uh, the US is looking like it might be the true laggard in. Um, thoughts on that, Matt? I think we'll get it right eventually. So I agree that we're the laggard right now, but I, I think we'll get it right eventually. I'm actually fairly optimistic about the level of understanding of crypto in Congress. If you go to Capitol Hill, and it's not actually just on the Republican side of the aisle. It's on both sides. Their level of understanding has gotten a lot better uh, over the last couple of years. So we're behind, but I'm optimistic that we'll, we'll catch up. I could be wrong. Jan thinks Jan, I'm wrong, I do obviously. want you to weigh in here, please. You know, the House Financial Services looked at you know, legislation, and one side of the aisle walked away. 
That is true. It's not perfect so, yet, yeah. <laughs> I love his, I love his uh, optimism. But the important I'm an thing is, too, by the, way. the important thing is, they're talking about it. They're, they're diving in. They're trying to get educated. It, that's, I think, progress. It may not be the progress the pace that we'd like to see, but it's definitely progress. It's massive. We had congressmen posting, you have to understand the difference between an algorithmic stable coin and a collateralized stable coin. The idea that they would have done that in 2018 is, they were like, stable coin, what? They've come a, a, a long way. Where do you see the, the biggest opportunities overseas? Uh, this, so I live in New York State, and I, we have a, a regulatory regime um, out of the financial services that I think is relatively sophisticated. So the country uh, of New York. It used to be, have the reputation, the bit license of being very slow and hard to get, and it still is. But they've tripled their staff. They're all crypto fluent, and they're actually regulating. And they have the rules that like an FTX couldn't have happened under New York regulations. So it's very thoughtful. They're interacting with a lot of foreign regulators. So, um, I, you know, I'm, I'm just an advisor it's a, it's to a, them. It's a very interesting perspective because this is what Maxim Waters got upset because PayPal decided to uh, launch their stablecoin under NYDFS yeah, regulations, right? Listen, you have a major sector of financial services that is not regulated by Washington that people forget about. The yeah. insurance industry, it's all regulated at the state level. So if DC, you know, if DC doesn't get attacked together, I know you're very small chance you'll be wrong. But if, if that's the case, if like if you took Florida, let me take it, you know, forget Wyoming. But if Florida were to have set up a DFS, so you had a red state and a blue state with sophisticated crypto regulation, they might just leapfrog whatever's yeah. going to happen in, in, in Washington. So I think that's an optimistic take on it. It's also, like it also plays on the, the idea that the United States is the ultimate decentralized system, right? It's, it's, it is one of its advantages. It kind of is pre-blockchain decentralization. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. Uh, all listen, um, four minutes, four and a half minutes to go. Like, why don't we just explore, like, really the number of advisors who, I mean, there's, there seems to be interest in this space. People have been curious about it for some time. There's a number of sort of prominent advisors who are out there promoting it. but the uptick is still difficult, right? We talked about custody and other things. What do you see as the, the single most important thing that needs to happen to get this community more engaged? You know, we talked about the Bitcoin ETF, but like what, what can be done? I'm not on the product side, but I can tell you what I get here from my internal partners. It really is a ton of education. We need to continue to educate and we also need to continue to make the experiences easier because when I think about it, it's challenging. I heard many panelists speak over the course of the past few days talking about advisors need to spend more time advising and less time administering. And if we could help them do that, I think that could help drive adoption. I'm an investment person. Um, so I'd say, especially now, put half a percent of your clients' portfolios in Bitcoin or more. It's a good time uh, long-term because I'm afraid of government debt. And I just, I don't know when that could, may not be our lifetime, but that's the biggest risk to our financial system now, I believe. And then number two is cyclically, this is a great time because you've got the happening next, um, next year in the second quarter. That's always been bullish for crypto, maybe less so as each cycle goes through, but it's been bullish. And the Fed um, has probably stopped raising rates or it's close to the end. So that's an actionable investment idea, I, you know, and it's sort of, I believe it. So. Does, does, the, does the sector break free of that risk asset correlation? I mean, we talked about not liking the word correlation earlier, but like, is there a, uh, that, that you idea? You mean between uh, other cryptos? Yeah, and, I mean, because no, it, it, it seems like it, it, there are times when crypto is the, sort of like doing its own thing, but certainly when it's been sort of through this rate cycle, it's been vulnerable to that. Well, just a couple of observations. I always say the Bitcoin is like an eight-year-old child, right? It's just a maturing asset. About a year ago, people were like, I don't need Bitcoin because it's highly correlated to NASDAQ. Now it, the correlation to NASDAQ is almost zero. Not that I love correlation as a statistic. 
So I think it's evolving over time. And yes, it is highly correlated to the rest of crypto right now, but I think that could change. Yeah, I think the high correlation is just straight fake news. I think it's, it's legitimately untrue in a general sense. If you look at Bitcoin's history for nine out of the last 10 years, its correlation has been below 0.25. It was only in that one year of the most extreme QE we've to, ever had. correlation to what? To, to S&P 500. Has been below 0.25, which is effectively zero. It's only that one year with the extreme QE that the correlation spiked to like 0. 0.5, 0. 0.6, which still isn't that high. Like any asset, it's driven by multiple factors. Macro is one of them, but crypto specific is the other one. Historically, that's the primary driver. It's only because we had trillions of dollars of stimulus and zero interest rates. So if we're in that environment, of course, that's going to dictate things. But in any normalized monetary and federal environment, it's going to have a very low correlation to, to risk assets, effectively zero. At least that's what it's done historically. It's pretty much, that pretty much everything became a risk asset or non-risk asset. That's right. right? Like, like everything Tesla, was correlated. Tesla wasn't trading based on the number of cars it sold, right? It was yeah. just trading on, on a risk basis. But long-term, crypto is driven by crypto factors, which are not stock factors, which is what makes it so valuable in portfolio settings. Any sort of final word from you? Uh, one thing I would just say is we, we talked a lot about Bitcoin and crypto. I would say personally, I don't think they're the same thing. Bitcoin is a crypto asset. Crypto as a broader thing, when people often talk about it, they're talking about smart contract platforms, decentralized application. Many of these tokens have different economics and they have very different uh, fundamentals when you look at the technology. So I would just caution people to think about it. Yes, this is an alternative asset class, but they are not all the same. It's, yeah, yes. it's very late to start defining terms, but there's like 20,000 tokens out there. And when I talk about crypto, we just talk about the 100 or so that have some economic ecosystem involved. So it's software that someone is paying for some level of functionality related to that software. So uh, yeah, that, that triggered my thought there. All righty. I think that's all the time we have for, for now. I didn't see there was a question about real-time settlement. Sometimes I didn't see it, but we, we answered that. I think was the, uh, whether or not there is, and the answer was yes, there is going to be real-time settlement in the global financial system as a result of this, this technology. Thank you so much for your time. A round of applause for the panel, please. Thank you. You've been listening to Money Reimagined with Michael Casey moderating a panel demystifying crypto with Bitwise, Van Eck, and Fidelity. Hope you enjoyed this episode. We would love to hear what you think. Please reach out to us at podcast at coindesk.com subject line Money Reimagined or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Today's show has been produced and edited by senior producer Michelle Musso and associate producer Ryan Huntington. Our theme song is The News Tonight by Shimmer. Thanks for listening. <laughs>